I want to start this morning by reminding you of Romans 5.19. Romans 5.19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Paul explicitly says that through the sin of the one man, namely Adam, we were made sinners. So when Adam sinned, God immediately thought of all who would descend from him as sinners. So though we did not yet exist, nonetheless, God, looking into the future and knowing we would exist, counted us as guilty in Adam. So the conclusion is all mankind are represented by Adam. And because he sinned, we were made sinners, which means we sin because we're sinners rather than becoming sinners when we sin. Now, let's just think about that for a moment, because I'm not sure we're always clear on that. I mean, when we're blessed to have a beautiful little baby, which the Bible rightly describes as a gift from God, and blessed is the man who has many of them, we automatically think of them as angelic, pure and innocent and blameless, little angels. And yet, they instinctively sin, don't they? I mean, I don't know about your kids, but I didn't have to teach my kids to be selfish. I didn't have to teach them to whine and cry when they didn't get what they wanted or to hoard their toys, or to hit someone when they tried to take them. I didn't even have to teach them to say mine. Right? Lynn and I would compete. You know how this works. Say daddy, say daddy, say mommy, say mommy, right? You're trying. So, because that's a, that's a way in which you declare who you love the most. <laughs> like, right? Mommy, daddy, mommy, daddy. What did they say in response? Mine. <laughs> Mine, mine, mine. And adults are the same way, aren't they? I mean, we like to think of ourselves as kind and helpful and loving, willing to give the shirt off our back to anyone in need. Yet the truth of the matter is that we're instinctively selfish, only really willing to do what benefits us and happy to blame, shift, fault, and justify actions. I mean, when you get right down to it, here's the question. Is man inherently good, or is man inherently evil? Boy, how we'd love to say good. But the honest answer from both the Bible and experience is that man is inherently evil. We're sinners. Again, Romans 5.19. For as by the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners. But here's the glory of the gospel. So also by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I mean, do you realize this morning that the whole book of Genesis is about Jesus? And the whole book of Exodus, when we get there, is about Jesus. In fact, that's the summary of what Genesis and Exodus care about. Pictures of Jesus, pointers to Jesus, and gives us the unfolding promise of how God protects the seed of the woman to get us all the way forward to Jesus. 
So from start to finish, Genesis is about Jesus. My goal this morning is to overview Genesis 1 to 11 by following the narrative and pointing to the consistent themes that we see in Genesis 1 to 11. And then Richie will preach next week, Genesis 12 to 50. But we're specifically trying to give you a fresh reminder of the narrative that leads us into the book of Exodus. But we're also trying to highlight specific themes that will be particularly relevant when we get to the book of Exodus. So lots to cover this morning in a short time. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. That's on page 1. <laughs> you don't get to say that a lot. So it doesn't matter what kind of Bible you have, ESV, NASB, it's page 1, Genesis chapter 1. Allow me to start by reading. You'll see my outline. That outline should make you nervous. Genesis 1, do it. Genesis 11, how's he going to do that this morning? That's a great question. We've got to jump in. Here we go. Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So the main theme that I really want to get on the table here is that the whole Bible is about Jesus, including Genesis and Exodus. So I'm arguing, A, that creation is all about Jesus. So here's a helpful question to ask as we start. Who wrote the book of Genesis? Now, do you know modern liberal scholars would argue that four different authors or groups of authors wrote Genesis over thousands of years? And then that one redactor or editor put it all together. That's what's known as the documentary hypothesis. In fact, here's a quote from their view, that despite its unity of plan and purpose, the book of Genesis is a complex work not to be attributed to one single original author. Why not? I mean, doesn't unity of plan and purpose automatically argue for a single author? Now, the Bible, on the other hand, says over and over and over again that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, otherwise known as the Pentateuch, Pentateuch book, first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the law. In fact, Jesus makes that clear in Luke 24, speaking to his disciples. He says, these words I've spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses must be fulfilled. Not only does Jesus say that Moses is the author of the law and therefore Genesis and Exodus, but he also says Moses wrote explicitly about Jesus. John 5 is the clearest. Jesus, arguing with the Pharisees, says, John 5, 45, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. No, there is only one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For Moses wrote of me. So clearly, Moses wrote the book of Genesis, but more importantly, Moses wrote about Jesus. Do you see, already as we start big picture, Genesis is about Jesus, and Exodus, therefore, is about 
Jesus. But you might be thinking, what does that look like exactly? I mean, specifically, how is creation about Jesus? Well, I would suggest it's in the redemptive details, in the redemptive categories. Remember Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And what does God do? He forms it, and he fills it with life. So essentially, it was dead, but then he spoke, and it's alive. And how did he do that? Well, through his word. What does John tell us about the word? John chapter 1, 1 to 4. It says, in the beginning, reference to Genesis, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him, in Jesus, was life. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why is that? Because the word spoken at creation that transformed all that was death into that which was alive was Jesus. Now make the connection. Because in the same way that God brought physical life out of death in creation through Jesus, he also brings spiritual life out of death through Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. John 14, 6. So creation is a picture. It's a pointer to Jesus and how we can become new creatures in Christ, spiritually born again, only in him. Because Moses specifically wrote about Jesus. So a major theme for us to remember, A, creation, and therefore the whole Bible, including Exodus, is about Jesus. But the narrative also points us to Jesus, because B, the fall highlights our desperate need for a Savior. Now, we've been over this story several times in the past few months, so let me move through it quickly, catching essential details. Genesis 1 highlights the individual days of creation, day 6 being the creation of mankind. If you look at 127, it says God created man in his own image, male and female he created them. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. The fish in the seas, the birds in the skies, the animals on the earth, all of it, have dominion over it. Then verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. It was perfect. It was paradise. And there was harmony between God and and man. Then we get to Genesis 2, which zooms in on that day and gives us the play-by-play, including God's command to Adam, verse 16, that you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, we all know that story, don't we? How the devil tempted Eve, Genesis 3, 1 to 6. How Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit, 
She ate, and she gave to her husband, Adam, and he ate. So number one, the first Adam sins. Why? Well, because he breaks God's command to not eat of the tree. And sin enters the world through the one man, through Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all men sin. That's what Romans 5.12 says. But even in the midst of that horrible event, the origin of sin and the start of death and destruction, we're given this glorious promise. Number two, the promise is given. If you would look with me at Genesis 3.15. Because God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring, her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Let's make sure you understand the players. Because the seed of the serpent is the devil. The seed of the woman is ultimately Jesus. But this says there will be enmity. There will be anger, hatred, spite, murder, killing, death, and destruction between the two of them. So the bruising of the heel and the crushing of the head ultimately happens if we look forward at the cross. The devil bruises Jesus' heel, not a mortal wound. Why? Because even though he's crucified, dead, and buried, he rises on the third day. That's the glorious victory promised here, the crushing of Satan's head, Christ conquering sin, death, and the devil through his death, burial, and resurrection, which enables him to offer forgiveness of sins and eternal life to anyone who will but believe in him. See, the devil brings sin and death. Jesus offers forgiveness and life. But that only comes through a battle that is raging. And it's raging all the way from Genesis 4 to Matthew 4. Because the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, so constant enmity, unending conflict, battle after battle, anger, hatred, spite, and yes, murder. Best illustration of that comes immediately after the fall. Genesis chapter 4, number 2, Cain and Abel. So narrative, pause, narrative. So creation, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, fall, Genesis 3, promise given, Genesis 3.15, but then there's the exile, 3.24, because God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden east of Eden, away from his presence because of their sin. Which brings us to Genesis 4 and the outworking of the Genesis 3.15 promise and this core theme that we want you to grab a hold of, that there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, Cain and Abel. If you would, follow along as I read Genesis 4, 1 to 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. 
And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is, your, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. Look at verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So Genesis 4 begins with the reality of offspring, of seed. We see it in verses 1 and 2 with the birth and introduction of two brothers, starting with Cain. And of course, that happens through the normal, everyday process of God providing children through a husband and wife sleeping together. Verse 1 says, Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore a son named Cain, saying, I, notice this, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, Eve must have thought Cain was the seed of the woman. Why do I say that? Because she doesn't say, I've given birth to a baby today, but instead, I've gotten. Cain's name means gotten. I've gotten an ish, meaning I've gotten a man. So according to Eve's declaration, Cain's another Adam who she's hoping, by God's grace, will be the seed of the woman and conquer the devil. And Cain certainly has tons going for him. For starters, his mother testifies that his birth was with the help of the Lord. So he clearly starts out with God's favor. In addition, the Israelites believed the firstborn would automatically receive God's blessing. So according to Eve, Cain is just assumed to be the seed of the woman. And then comes Abel. Now notice how included in this introduction is that the brothers is what the brothers do for a living and their respective offerings. Verse 3 says Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground, so he's a farmer, whereas Abel brings the fruit of his flock. So he's a shepherd. That's interesting. So he brings, each brings an offering, and each offering has everything to do with their profession. But God responds very different to the offerings, doesn't he? Notice how the text highlights the contrast. Verse 4 says, the Lord has regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Here's the million-dollar question. Why? Why did God have favor on Abel and not have favor on Cain? Is there a reason? Of course there's a reason. And the original audience would have known instantly what the reason was. 
Because Abel obeys God's law, which calls for his offering to be the very best of what he has, which it is. It's the firstborn. It's a perfect lamb, including the fat portions. So Abel obeys the law and brings the best of what he has, but Cain does not. Instead, he brings some of the fruit of the ground. So the contrast is stark. Abel brings the best of the best, whereas Cain brings only that which is token and superficial. Now, allow me to just pause for a moment, take a break from the action, and ask you some sobering question. Because you've got to recognize this is the outworking of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So for you, for starters, do you understand that God cares primarily about your heart? You look at the narrative closely. It says, has regard for Cain and his offering. See, it starts with the person, then what we do. Do you understand that God cares primarily about your heart? He cares about what you do, yes, your speech and your actions, but only to the extent that they're an overflow of your heart. For out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, your hands move, your feet walk. Out of the overflow of the heart, we bring our offerings to God. So the question as we look at Cain and Abel and the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is where is your heart this morning? Is it in a good place? Meaning, is it in a good place with God? Are you bringing the best of the best to God? on a daily basis? Or are you bringing half-hearted offerings, token and superficial, only the scraps of who you are and what you do, the leftovers? Remember what the Bible says about Israel. They worshiped God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. I'm just wondering, is that you this morning? Are you worshiping God with your lips while your heart is far from him. If so, you've got a decision to make, just like Cain. Look at verse 5. It says he was angry and his face fell. Now, was Cain mad at himself, taking responsibility for the situation, recognizing it's completely his fault? No, of course not. Instead, he does what Adam did, and he shifts the blame. Now, we're not sure if he's angry at God or if he's angry at Abel. My guess would be that he's angry at both. Angry that God didn't accept his offering and angry that Abel showed him up with a better offering. So he's mad at everyone, and he's mad at everything, and his face shows it. But look at how God responds. Verse 6. Why are you angry, Cain? Why has your face fallen? Now, God obviously knows the answer, but he's trying to help Cain get there to take responsibility for his lack of obedience. But notice the offer, because God gives Cain options. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Accepted is obviously the opposite of rejected. 
That's a great option. If you do well, will you not be accepted? That's an incredible offer. Take it, Cain, for all you're worth. Oh, my goodness. You see, God's like a loving parent here, trying to help his son see reason. Cain, own your sin. Repent of it and walk in the truth, which will bring joy to your heart and a smile to your face. But that option is followed by a warning, isn't it? Verse 7. But if you don't do well, Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching. Sin is coiled like a snake in the grass waiting to strike. It's like a lion ready to pounce. Makes you think of 1 Peter 5.8, doesn't it? Where it says your enemy, the devil, be clear, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him. How do we resist him? Firm in your faith. So Peter claims we can resist the devil, but only by faith. Be clear on that this morning. Only by faith can we do what is right. Only by faith can we speak what is truth. Only by faith can we be faithful to our spouses. Only by faith can we give generously. We do have a choice, don't we? Because we can also do what is wrong. We can nurse our anger. We can brood in our jealousy. We can let sin build up like a pressure cooker until it's ready to explode. That's why God says you must rule over sin. Or implied, sin will rule over you. So God gives Cain options. And he even appeals to him, Cain, do what is right. But what does Cain do? Well, he obviously refuses. Just look at the destruction. B, the seed is clarified because it goes downhill all the way from verse 8 to verse 24. So just one massive downward spiral of sin and death and destruction, starting with Cain's murder of his brother and ending with Lamech's boasting of his vengeance. Verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 70-fold. You see how things move? In the narrative, from bad to worse, starting with Cain saying to his brother, let's go out to the field. Cain takes the initiative, verse 8, takes his brother out into the field where no one's around to help and no one can hear you scream. Premeditated homicide. Not just of a stranger, but a brother. I want you to think about that. I mean, this is Cain's little brother. They grew up together. They played together. No doubt they look like one another. Had a close bond with one another. And there's obviously no guns or bombs at this point in time to depersonalize the killing. How did Cain kill his brother? Did he cut his throat? Did he crush his skull? 
Did he choke him with his bare hands? Did he, did he leave him for the vultures? I know. It's horrific. But you have to see it to understand the way of sin and death and destruction. And to understand the enmity that exists between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But it only gets worse because the anger and jealousy that led to conspiracy and death only leads to greater lies and greater deception. And all that together clarifies that Cain is the seed of the serpent. That's confirmed by the reality that he's cursed by God. Verse 16 says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Make the connection. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, were exiled from the garden, cast out of God's presence. Which way did they go? East of Eden. Now Cain's removed even further. If you will, he's east of east. He's even further away from God's presence, which is a horrible picture of judgment. So what do we do? This point in the narrative, what, what, what do we do? I mean, Cain is cursed, Abel is dead, and our only hope is to call on the name of the Lord that he would provide a substitute, right? Someone who will provide the righteousness we need and die the death that we deserve. We, we need a savior already at this point in the narrative who will bring life out of death. And we see him pictured right here. Look at verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed or God has provided another offspring, another seed instead of Abel, for Cain killed Abel. Do you, do you see how clear the text is? That this is a battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman and how God faithfully provides another seed of the woman. So yes, there's hope. God will fulfill his promise to provide the ultimate seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will ultimately fulfill the Genesis 3.15 promise and will ultimately crush the seed of the serpent. So sin, death, and destruction will not win. No, God will provide another. Abel's death points forward to Jesus' death, and the resurrection of Seth points forward to Jesus' resurrection because he's the ultimate seed of the woman whose innocent blood must also be shed so that it can speak a better word than the blood of Abel. But how exactly does Jesus' blood speak a better word? Well, rather than a cry for vengeance... It's a declaration of salvation. That sin, death, and the devil are defeated and that salvation is now available to everyone who will but believe in Jesus. So his death brings justification and his resurrection brings life. Let me just pause and appeal to anyone here this morning who stands outside of Christ. Allow me to even warn you as God warned Cain. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Not in your own strength, 
but in the strength of another because the power to rule sin and death only comes through the blood of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, his sacrifice, his broken body, and yes, his shed blood, which speaks the good news of the gospel to you this morning. See how it cries out a better message? It speaks to you, the blood, not of Abel, the blood of Jesus, the good news of the gospel. I plead with you, hear him calling you this morning and respond in faith. So again, the narrative. Let's review, right? Creation, Genesis 1 to 2. Fall, Genesis 3, the promise and the theme of Genesis 3, 15, that there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, is the first example. As we long for the seed of the woman who will conquer the seed of the serpent and crush serpent's head ultimately, but obviously Cain is not him. So we're given Seth who is definitely the seed of the woman, but he's obviously not the ultimate seed. How do we know that? Well, look at the genealogy, Genesis 5. Notice the pattern, starting in verse 5. It says, Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, key phrase, and he died. Verse 8, Thus all the days that Seth lived were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11. Verse 14. Verse 17. Verse 20. Verse 27. And he died. And he died. And he died. Unbroken pattern of sin and death. Until we come to verse 28, and we're given a very different narrative that's going to end up sounding a ton like the creation narrative all over again. And a new theme, number three, salvation and judgment. So if you would follow along as I read, starting in Genesis 5, 28. We'll skip through this a bit. It says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. But now we get a description saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, notice, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Do you hear how that sounds like the seed of the woman who will reverse the curse? That's all good news, but unfortunately, it's in the context of sin and death and destruction. Skip forward to Genesis 6, 5. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 11, 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence, notice, through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So, verse 14, here you go, Noah. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Skip down to verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now, do you know the only other people described like Noah in the rest of the Bible are patriarchs or are heroes of the faith, including Adam, who walked with God in the cool of the day. But also Abraham, Genesis 17.1, God said to him, I am the Lord God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. What's my point? My point is that Noah is in good company because he walked with God, which means he had an intimate relationship with God. But how is that possible? Well, there's only one way for that to be possible, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, there's only one way to be right with God, and that's by grace through faith, which is a gift of God. Verse 8, Noah found favor in God's eyes. That's God's grace. And the outworking is Noah's faith. Noah trusting the promises of God and walking in obedience to them. By the way, did you notice verse 22? Noah did all that God commanded. What is that? That's Noah walking by faith. And just look at how that gets played out. Because to have faith in God is to believe in God, is to love God, is to obey God. Why? Because salvation looks like something. And right here for Noah, it looks like building an ark. That's number one, the righteousness of Noah. But that has to be seen in contrast to number two, the sinfulness of of man, which started, as we know, with Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam's disobedience of God leading to Cain's killing of Abel, leading to Lamech's boasting of murders and vengeance, leading to the wickedness of man being so great on the earth that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Here's the key question for you this morning. Why does God judge the earth with a flood? Sin. Sin is the problem. God is not flipping God who gets angry for no apparent reason and then decides to destroy all that he had created. Remember Genesis 1.31? God saw everything he had made and behold, he declared... It was very good. 
Now, verse 13, God saw everything he had made, and it was corrupt. He says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Why? Because the earth is filled with violence. The earth is filled with sin. How? Very specific. Through them. You, you have to grab a hold of the cause and effect. Sin results in God's judgment. And yet, God provides a glorious salvation. But only for those who are in Noah. But how does he do that? Well, he does that through the ark, through B, God's provision of salvation. I mean, let me ask you this question. Who came up with the ark? Whose idea was that? Was that Noah? Was Noah so profoundly advanced for his time that he anticipated the flood? He knew that he was coming, it was coming, so he decided to, to design and develop and build something in order to save himself and his family from a worldwide destruction. Was that Noah? I don't think so. Verse 14, God says, make yourself an ark. And notice how God gives Noah the exact materials, process, and design. Right? Here's the materials. Go for wood and pitch. That's what you need. Here's the process. Make rooms and cover them with pitch. Here's the design. 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Now, we don't tend to use cubits anymore, right? It's kind of hard to find a tape measure with cubits on it if you head over to Home Depot this afternoon. What's a cubit? A cubit is 18 inches. It goes from your elbow to the tip of your hand. You don't need a tape measure because you got your arm. I'm just saying, right? So, so what is God saying? Well, God's saying to Noah, build an ark 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. What is that? That's a big, massive boat. That's huge. Uh, raise your hand. How many of you have been to the Ark Encounter? If you haven't gone to the Ark Encounter, I would just strongly encourage you to go. It is awesome. You don't even have to pay for admission. You, you just, all you have to do is drive up to the parking lot and look at that big, massive boat. And it's a mile away, on purpose. You drive up and you look and you say, wow. Already, ark encounter. It's awesome. The ark is this big, massive boat. But it is totally legitimate. Like, I'm an engineer, so this is totally unfortunate from my perspective because I would love to argue with you this morning just how legitimate that boat really is. It's totally buildable, totally seaworthy, totally functional. That's what it is. It's God's perfect provision for salvation. Not only for Noah, but for every living creature and every person who would only but repent and believe in God's warning of a coming judgment, which is critical, I think, as we think about salvation in the midst of judgment. Because the New Testament describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5, which he was, 
How long was Noah a preacher of righteousness? Read your Bible. At least 100 years. Maybe 120 years. Which must have been unbelievably difficult. No doubt required his total dedication and entire earthly resources. And no doubt he was ridiculed by his friends and neighbors and co-workers the entire time. Just think with me. How many Noah jokes do you think there were by men and women walking by? Because none of them believed when he spoke of the coming judgment. Not one. Which means Noah was the laughingstock of the entire known world. And I want you to think about that. Because Genesis 6.22 says so clearly, Noah did all that God commanded him. Boy, that is so helpful as we think about our current culture. Let me just ask, how about you right now? Are you heeding God's word Are you obeying all that the Lord has commanded you? Are you persevering in your faith, even in the midst of the difficulties? Are you walking with God in all that you do? Could it be said of you this morning that you are a preacher? Of righteousness. You see, Noah is such a challenge to us because his faith looked like something. Does your faith look like something this morning? Is it evident and obvious to every single person who knows you? Obviously, the rain came down, the floods went up, everything on the earth died. But you have to see all of that as God decreating the earth and then recreating it all over again with a new Adam. In fact, just look at Genesis 7, 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth and the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. Now just think back to Genesis 1, 1. How does Genesis start? The earth is formless and void, and water covered the entire earth. And of course, nothing was alive, right? So everything was dead. Look at verse 23, 22. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Everything except Noah. Verse 23, only Noah was left, and all those who were with Noah in the ark. Then we hit the center point of the entire flood narrative, which tells us that Genesis 8-1 is the main idea. Here's the big takeaway from the entire flood narrative, Genesis 8-1, that God remembered Noah. So God decreates the entire earth with the flood, then he recreates it all over again with Noah as a new Adam, so the waters go down and the land comes up and God repopulates the earth with life, Genesis 8.15. 15. 
And God said to Noah, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives. Bring out every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping things. Notice, same command as Genesis 1.28, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. God gives Noah the exact same command that he gave to Adam. Genesis 9.1, be fruitful and multiply, Noah, and fill the earth. Now, if you think narrative, you should be thinking, surely this is the one. Surely this is the seed of the woman that we've been waiting for, who will crush the seed of the serpent, reverse the curse, and bring salvation to all those who believe in him. Right? I mean, doesn't it feel that way when you see Noah building an altar of the Lord? Right? right? The waters go down, he comes out of the ark, and he builds an altar to the Lord, and he worships God. Genesis 8, 20 to 22. And God makes a new covenant with Noah, promising that he will never curse the earth again. Genesis 9, 1 to 17. And yet, where do we find ourselves at the end of Genesis 9? What happens to Noah? We find a drunk and naked Noah. Noah's not the one. Genesis 10, we have the table of nations, but what do they do? They build the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, with what purpose? Their purpose is to be like God, so they're just like Adam and Eve. Oh my goodness. Where do we find ourselves at the end of Genesis 11? Quite honestly, we find ourselves right back in the need for redemption. What do we do with all of this? I mean, how should we respond to the mess, to the unbroken, consistent pattern of sin? Well, I want to close by pressing home this last theme, salvation in the midst of judgment, and just remind you again this morning that there is another judgment coming. Why is there another judgment coming? Because God will not leave sin unpunished. I mean, that's the whole point of the flood narrative, isn't it? That God would not be a just God if he didn't punish sin. So that judgment is coming, and that judgment will be horrific. Listen to me this morning when I say to you, don't be like the people in Noah's day who were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and didn't listen to a single thing that Noah the preacher of righteousness said. Oh, I appeal to you to learn from history. Listen to the preacher of righteousness. Listen to the word of God. Listen to the warning. Don't sit there thinking to yourself, I hear what you're saying about a universal judgment, but I've never seen it before, so I'm not going to believe in it. Oh, don't be like that. Don't think like that. Don't you know that's what the people were saying in Noah's day? And yet, the flood came. And the door was closed. You know, I think about that day sometimes. He went into the ark. He had been preaching salvation in the midst of judgment for 100, 120 years. 
And then the door is closed. And the rain comes down. And the flood goes up. Don't you think people went running to that ark? Started banging on the door. No more opportunity. No more chance. You know, there's a popular view out there that after you die, you get another chance to respond to the Lord Jesus. Boy, that's wishful thinking, isn't it? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. I plead with you. Listen to this pathetic preacher of righteousness. There is salvation available for every single person who will but believe in Jesus. He is the second Adam. He is the ultimate seed of the woman. And he crushed the devil's head through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And he offers you life, but that life is only available in him. Only in him. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, I just want to appeal to you, to challenge you, even as I've been challenged in Genesis 1 to 11. I look at Noah and I think, am I a preacher of righteousness? Do I walk before my God blameless and above reproach every day? Do I obey all that he has commanded me? Oh, may God give us the grace that we would excel still more. But we would do so with great clarity by faith. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, may we walk blameless before him. By faith in Christ, may we keep his commandments. By faith in Christ, may we be preachers of righteousness. And may God use us mightily that men and women, boys and girls would trust in the Lord Jesus and live for his glory. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're grateful this morning to review Genesis 11. Father, to see these these themes so clearly that we know are just going to get reiterated all through the book of Exodus. But Father, I pray that you would use the word, that you would press it home to our minds and our hearts this morning. Father, that we would recognize that there is a battle raging, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, that we're called to live in the midst of that battle, that we are called to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are called to rise above all of the muck and the mire and the mess, that we would live blameless, that we would be above reproach, and that we would be preachers of righteousness. But Father, I pray 
that we would know that that only happens in Christ alone. Father, may our faith be grounded. May it be sure and steady in the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.